It's believing in a cause or mission or ultimately a purpose. It's bringing the positive energy to that belief that when you connect with others, helps build that momentum. And one of the great privileges of, of the CEO role is you can really can enable others to, to share that belief and come with you on a journey that, that is deeply embedded in a, in a particular belief. And the belief that I fundamentally had was, was that all children should be able to learn to read, write and count. This is season three of the Charity CEO podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders. I'm Libby O'Connor, and I never imagined that this show that I started as an experiment during the pandemic would turn into a number one ranked global podcast with thousands of listeners all across the world. It is truly humbling to know that the show's content is valued by so many. And thanks to our season three sponsor, Eden Tree, I will continue to bring you inspirational and engaging conversations with a host of leaders who are all truly driving change in the non-profit space. Eden Tree themselves are owned by a charity and have led the way in responsible and sustainable investing for over three decades. Thank you to Eden Tree. Now, on with the show. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to the Charity CEO podcast. Today is a very special episode of the podcast. Regular listeners will know that I recently took up the appointment as Chief Executive of United World Schools. I'm privileged to be here today talking to Tim Howarth, my predecessor and the founding CEO of United World Schools. Tim talks about the journey of taking UWS from his family's kitchen table to the global organisation that it is today, with 1,200 staff operating across four continents and reaching 45,000 children in poor and marginalised communities. UWS builds and runs schools in remote areas of the Global South, providing primary education to children who otherwise would not have a school to go to. With a vision of a world where all children have the chance to go to school, United World Schools is an incredibly special organisation, and I feel hugely privileged and excited to be taking the organisation forward on its next phase of growth. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to do this with you today. Thank you very much for being here. Congratulations on the podcast series three. I've been listening in, really enjoying it. Oh, fantastic. Well, you should know then, Tim, that we always start with an icebreaker round. So if you're ready for the five questions, let's kick off. Let's do it. Let's go for it. Looking forward to this. So question one, tell us about a book or a person that has had a profound impact on you. So I think a book that I really have enjoyed reading, actually to my children, but I enjoyed reading it as a child was Oh, The Places You'll Go by Dr. Zeus, which I think is a fantastic, <laughs> love that creative way of storytelling and bringing all sorts of characters to life. And actually the morals within that, which are done in a very graceful, clever manner, but I think the life lessons coming through on that Oh, The Places You'll Go book is absolutely brilliant. And I enjoy reading it to my son and my daughter as much as they enjoy having it read to them. And there's definitely something in there for people of just about every age. So big fan of Dr. Zeus. And that brings us nicely, Tim, to my second question for you. As a child, what did you dream of being when you grew up? And I wonder if Dr. Zeus had some influence here. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. So I probably wanted to be an international sports person, although I wanted to try and play every sport cricket in the summer and football in the winter and tennis and, and swimming and all sorts. 
managed to achieve none of that, but thoroughly enjoyed playing sport as a child. What I was exposed to as a child, actually, was was education. My mum was a teacher, my dad's a teacher, my sister and I became teachers. So education, actually, was something that we as a family sort of became deeply involved in. And I suppose that also helped us craft our careers as well. Well, we are, of course, going to come on to talk much more about education. And so moving on to question three, what would you say is your professional superpower? So try to summarise this in one word. And that one word is is a very simple word. It's the word believe. And if I try and unpack that word, it's believing in a cause or mission or ultimately a purpose. It's bringing the positive energy to that belief that when you connect with others, helps build that momentum. And also it keeps a certain professional and personal resilience within that. So that when you are in a privileged position of leading other people, actually that shared belief and that resilience around that particular belief is something that enables you to achieve an awful lot. And I think as I reflect on the last 10 years or so with United World Schools, certainly I think we've managed to achieve an awful lot, but I also think we've we've believed. And one of the great privileges of, of the CEO role is you can really can enable others to, to share that belief and come with you on a journey that, that is deeply embedded in a, in a particular belief. And the belief that I fundamentally had was, was that all children should be able to learn to read, write and count. I love the nuance and the different dimensions you've brought to that. Um, if you believed in magic, so question four, if you had a magic wand that you could wave and change one thing in the world right now, what would that be? Well, look, having just been reading recently about all of the outcomes of COP26, and, and let's hope that they very quickly become part of policy and social change happens as a result. I think something that could, in a positive way, capture the, the carbon in the atmosphere and maybe it could become a way of catalyzing all sorts of good stuff and the way that it's done. I suppose ultimately what trees do over uh, hundreds of years, which is to capture the carbon out of the atmosphere, but to be able to do that quickly and to be able to find a solution to this climate crisis and the last 200 years of carbon-centric economies. Fantastic. And our final icebreaker question, if you had the opportunity to interview anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and what one question would you like to ask them? Okay, well, that is a great question. I've been thinking about people that I would very much like to have interviewed, possibly in, in preparation for, the, for, this, for this one. But controversially, I would very much like to go back in time and sit down with Pol Pot, as many of you will know, is a extremely controversial dictator, leader of Cambodia for many years, part of which was, was, was my lifetime. And I think the legacy that he's left in Cambodia is hugely negative. But on the other hand, he was a highly educated man. He went to some of the best schools in Cambodia. He had the chance to experience an increasingly global world. He chose to then, with an awful lot of incredible leadership skill, to lead a country on an agrarian socialist journey and evolve into sort of a communist society. Now, I would very much like to just understand why having had the opportunity that he had through education, why he would then choose ultimately to sort of take a country back 250 plus years and to understand deeply, you know, why would he want a nation to go on that journey? And of course, you know, now being part of the legacy of that in a positive way with United World Schools means that, you know, you understand on a fairly deep level some of the challenges faced in Cambodia, but I'd love to go back to, you know, sort of 1979 and, and interview Pol Pot. 
Yes, I think that would be fascinating. And moving seamlessly from Pol Pot to talking about United World Schools, which is an organization that is clearly close to both of our hearts. And I know the charity started in Cambodia. And Tim, I've heard you say many times that you are part of the founding family of the charity. It is an organization that your father started, and then you took it on as the founding CEO. But tell us more about how it all started. What's the origin story of United World Schools? Sure. It started as a small family project and around sort of 2006, seven, when my father was volunteering in Cambodia, working with the Ministry of Education to advise on ethnic minority education, how it can be improved. And at the end of his two years with BSO, great organization, I remember he, he sat down and we were talking literally over a beer. And he said, look, I just don't feel after two years had anything like the impact that one hopes one will make as a volunteer, having made an enormous commitment. And the conversation then progressed and said, well, actually, there is this, this community that we've got to know who don't have a school. So what about developing a school in, in this community? And we could use a, a little bit of family inheritance money that we just literally from a distant relative inherited to get going with that first school. And of course, you say, well, it's an, it's an absolute perfect, brilliant, no brainer of an idea. So we we started on that first school. So dad was very much pioneering this first school. We had my sister and I behind him. And very much organically, we developed what turned out to be a pretty robust business model. But it wasn't as though we had a perfect plan laid out from outset. It really was a make it up as you go along effort. So the core elements of the model, working with a community to develop a school, working with the government to support that school, again, all building blocks of the business model. And then my sister actually was the person who catalyzed the partner school model because she said, well, I work in a relatively affluent school in the UK. Now, those students would gain a huge amount from learning about that community in Cambodia. And maybe they could raise a little bit of money and, and that money will fund the school in Cambodia for the long term. And that felt like we had a, a community anchored, appropriate, sustainable project. So we got going and it turned out to be an absolutely brilliant experience for everybody involved. The danger of doing that, of course, is the community down the road says, well, this looks like a really interesting project. Could we do something similar? So, okay, okay well, let's scrape together some funds. And, and it really was a sort of family kitchen table effort for the first few years. We were lucky enough to secure some funds from people who were family, friends, etc. But then we got serious about it as the organisation professionalised. And, and that was my professional journey then took the organization on from a volunteer organization for the first few years to a professionalized organization. And we really started to scale up from about 2015 as a result. So talking there about the business model and how you really developed that model from essentially your family's kitchen table into something that is much more sustainable today. Tell us a little bit more about the theory of change and how that has been built with sustainability really at its heart. And also children at its heart and children's learning journey is Of course. So a sustainable journey, because we know that education is a long game. We know that educational impact is something that takes many years really to come through. So therefore it had to be sustainable. It needed to be child-centric. The theory of change that that has been developed and, and iteratively developed over the years is one that is very much child-centric. So if we put ourselves in the shoes of, let's say, the, the eight-year-old girl who comes from a 
community who doesn't have access to any kind of education, you know, her life chances look pretty grim. And so our theory of change tries to say, well, how do we take that situation and move it to a, a much better vision, which is where that eight-year-old girl is, is included in a well-run safe school where she's learning how to read, write, count, use the national language in a school that will become part of the government system that's, that's sensitive and appropriate to local cultures and, and local customs, but also is very much part of the government system, teaching the national curriculum, etc. And this became the building blocks of the theory of change, trying to work out how do we take out-of-school children in remote communities to a position where they're attending a, a sustainable, well-run, inclusive, safe school. And so the theory of change is, is pretty simple. In terms of what we actually do, well, we teach the unreached. So this is about providing education. We work with the local community to build the necessary infrastructure, typically a, a small school, three or four classrooms, and a, a playground, etc., latrines. And then we work with community teachers to make sure that the language of instruction is the mother tongue of those children, so the eight-year-old girl can understand what's going on when she doesn't speak the national language, but also teach the government national curriculum at the same time, so that school becomes increasingly part of the government system and that child is on a pathway of getting into government high school provision. And that means we're then working with communities, with government, on that sustainability model. So the school, when they run well, which many of our schools fortunately are, and the community are highly engaged, which they almost always are, those schools transition into the national system after sort of five to seven years, at which point you get the both the primary impact, which is of course is children attending school, learning the necessary literacy and numeracy skills, improve life pathways, but also you are transitioning that school into the, the national system which means you can positively influence policy and practice and definitely training capacity, which means that you add all that up. You know, you take that one eight-year-old girl and you scale the intervention by many, many, many more children in many more countries. Well, the long-term impact means that hundreds of thousands of children then have the chance to have a much better future. And they are children who are from some of the poorest communities, some of the most marginalised communities in the world. One of the aspects that I really love about the UWS model is this multiplier effect that you just talked about there, which is really inherent in the model, and particularly the schools becoming part of the government system. But I do know that delivering this transition element of the model has perhaps been a little trickier than was first anticipated, and that the first few UWS schools to successfully transition into government ownerships were handed over to local authorities in Cambodia only earlier this year. So from your experience, Tim, what learnings can you share with other charity leaders with respect to establishing successful partnerships with local governments, particularly in the INGO context? And possibly one of the things that we've had in our minds as we've matured as an organisation is that sustainable exit plan which is all about how do schools transition into the government system. It's almost like you, you can picture the, the little green light above the door in the office, which is the exit light, and you sort of follow that person, keep that in your mind as you plan your programmes. For what that meant for United World Schools was, look, we needed to have really good relationships at a local and national level, particularly with the Ministry of Education, but also with the Ministry of Finance, and work with those groups from outset in order to deliver the projects and be resilient and sticky 
within those systems that were largely semi-functional. And I mean that with deep respect, you know, semi-functional because there are many, many out-of-school children. So there's a degree of dysfunction that exists and you accept that. But what you don't compromise is the long-term relationship building with government in order to ultimately deliver the school into that government system after, say, seven years and to have certain agreed criteria from outset which will ensure that our school, as it transitions, is going to land softly into that system and be sustained for many more years to come. For example, is there a rock-solid way of ensuring that the finances from the Ministry of Finance will get to that school in year eight, in year nine, in year 10, in year 15? So that's making sure that there, those schools effectively are written into future budgets at a government level. It's about making sure that the community are sufficiently upskilled in order to govern that school and advocate for that school at a local level with the Ministry of Education at a provincial level in order to make sure that those mechanisms, that that accountability to government is delivered for the long term. You've got the human capability, you've got the finance, you've got the, the social and political capital which you share between the various stakeholders and it all is bound by one clear unifying purpose, which everybody has, if you like, a very good reason to deliver, which is we all want to see children effectively learning in school. Governments want a literate and numerate population. They want to support their people on their journey, and they will get ultimately voted back into power by doing so. As educationalists, we want to see children on a much better life pathway. So we make sure that we set the schools up, but also we're acknowledging our position, which is not to be there for the long term. The local community are a fundamental partner as part of that process. And we used to use the term empower, and I no longer think that's quite the right word here in terms of local communities, because, and crikey, the last 18 months have shown us this, it's not necessarily about empowerment it's about partnership deep partnership and so again the lesson learned is the partnership on offer with community leaders mums and dads equally can be incredibly powerful when you're all united around that same purpose so i suppose to summarize look we needed a clear agreed plan for each school bound by an mou that the different stakeholders had all signed up to from outset wrap around finances, wrap around human capability and sufficient social and political capital to see that journey through. And then the final piece is the one that sort of ensures you still got a little bit of leverage. So as an organisation, as an NGO, we can set things up. And of course, these schools are now government schools after seven years once they're in the system. We're not responsible for them. However, what levers do we have to pull? Well, by being a successful NGO that's good at fundraising and can continue to grow and develop, well, actually, we can go back to those same governments say, let's do another 200 schools with you, but you must keep supporting the schools that we did, the first 100 schools that we did. And that's quite a useful lever to have. You can influence government by bringing in millions of dollars of philanthropic resource as long as you set it up in a way that, that ensures that it's respectful of local and national policy and process. Hmm. And talking now a little bit more about the past 18 months and the whole COVID 
pandemic and the point that you made that I think is really interesting in terms of accountability to the ultimate stakeholder which is really the child mm. I'm very conscious that we are recording this podcast in the run-up to Christmas in 2021 and that here in the UK we are facing the potential of further lockdowns and more school closures in the new year in order to combat the spread of the new Omicron variant And you will have heard that the UN estimated that during the pandemic last year, nearly 500 million children globally did not have access to remote learning. And given that UWS operates in contexts where children are not likely to have access to the internet and digital learning, I'd like to understand a bit more about what UWS did during that time of school closures in the pandemic. How did you ensure that children in the UWS schools were able to still access education? And look, if I'm going to start by acknowledging teachers and school leaders around the world for an incredibly difficult last 18 plus months. Absolutely. And as, as you say, I, I think we, we unfortunately are not out of this yet. This is far longer than probably any of us expected, but we are still dealing with it. And deep respect to, to all teachers and school leaders. And our, our teachers and school leaders were no different. They were faced with an extraordinary situation and incredibly proud of how our teams, our teachers, our community leaders responded because we came together and we came up with a plan that we thought was simple, that was focused, that was deliverable, but also that would significantly improve the way the schools would be managing an incredibly difficult time. So the three areas that we focused on, one was to make sure that in each school we had a, a water supply that was upgraded, that was safe, and therefore children could be washing their hands regularly and opening up those for community use. The second thing we, we did was to run COVID-19 health and awareness campaigns in the communities, both in terms of safe avoidance from the virus, just really accurate, up-to-date information of what's happening and how to respond as invariably the waves of the pandemic go through. So we were very much a trusted partner of each community and delivered in the language of the community, which of course is not something that our communities that we work with will necessarily be able to access. I, I, they don't always speak the national language. And the third thing we did was then to make sure that some kind of remote learning was provided in, in each community. That took various forms, could be as, as simple as take-home project-based learning packs, which students would, would take home and bring back for, for assessment. It could also be radio lessons. We piloted radio lessons in Nepal. And these went incredibly well. They were done fairly quickly by our teams for our communities, all, all very locally anchored. We also found that it wasn't just our communities that were then tuning into these radio lessons. Actually, it was many more communities. So as a result, the organisation kept children safe, kept children learning, kept children in the habit of school, but also managed to, in Nepal's example, managed actually to reach many more students than we anticipated. We kept it simple, we kept it appropriate, but we made sure that the quality of what we were providing was, was assured and effective and wherever possible was high quality primary education provision. Brilliant. I love the idea of the radio lessons. I think that's so innovative and pleased to hear that through those radio lessons, we were able to keep connected to the children and to communities and provide that access, which I think is so incredibly important. 
Tim, I'm always curious to ask my guests about their career journeys and what they have learned along the way. So I know you've obviously talked about United World Schools, but tell us a bit more about your background and what key leadership lessons that you have learned over the past decade. Honestly, it's been a phenomenal privilege and honour to be on the UWS journey and to have led the organisation. It means a lot to hand over to you, actually. And so plenty, plenty of lessons, and I, I won't bore the listeners with all of them, but maybe just pick out two or three. We've touched on that sort of belief concept. If there's one overriding feature that's really driven that success in the last 10 years, it really is that complete and utter belief in the mission, you know, linking up with people who share that commitment to the power of education to transform lives. So that's sort of the first leadership, I suppose, lesson is is that fundamental belief, which means you ultimately, I suppose, you, you know who you are and you know why you're here. And that made our proposition as a charity to philanthropists very clear and we were very tangible and therefore we could be quite focused in terms of what we take to people so there's that first kind of leadership lesson which is really fundamentally about belief and purpose I suppose the second one learn is to have the confidence to make goals audacious big and bold so an example here would be we needed to professionalize the organization and we knew that required a, a decent amount of unrestricted funding that would go on the salaries of the initial founding team that would therefore deliver that sort of step change in terms of organizational capability. And we needed therefore to go out with a very clear proposition that was all about funding core costs. We all know in the charity sector is, is sometimes a very difficult thing to do. On the other hand, we took out a proposition that was audacious, it was big, it was bold, and it got people to sit up and go, okay, that's interesting. I would like to know more because you're either bonkers or you've got a great idea and I want to know which one it is. And so we went out and said, look, we need a million pounds of unrestricted funding pledged over three years and it will pay for the team. This is an investment in the team's core capability. But as a result of investing, we have a business plan that will enable us over the next five to 10 years to reach 50,000 out-of-school children across various countries. Now, that suddenly became quite a good investment in terms of sort of the legacy of a philanthropic gift over several years to then say, well, I'm investing in a journey that ultimately will deliver 50,000 children on a much better life pathway. So by making those goals big and bold and audacious and ambitious, we, I think, attracted the attention of people that we wouldn't have had if we set a more timid probably more achievable goal, but it was the fact that it was audacious that gave it that sort of gravitas. The third thing I suppose we've we've learned, and certainly I've learned as a leader, is is the importance of connecting and investing in people. And I think at our best, and as chief executive at my best, I think we've built really strong, mutually beneficial, trusted relationships, be it with, with funding partners, operational partners, and we've made it more than just sort of a great cause. You know, we've invested in people and almost made it part of a family. Whereas as a chief executive, I've stumbled. Often it's about failing to properly invest in the right people in the right way. That sort of leadership lesson is just being mindful of your privileged position as a chief exec. And part of your role is to enable others to be the very best of themselves and that involves deeply investing in them as people and and the result you can achieve great things but if you fail to do that that's where you can come unstuck so there are many more as you'd probably expect but I'd say those, (laughs) those three which is all about that belief and purpose secondly it's about making those goals you know audacious and big and bold and thirdly it's about investment in people. 
I love the idea of big, hairy, audacious goals. And I absolutely <laughs> share with you the fundamental belief in the mission and having that clarity of vision and purpose is so key as a chief exec and as you are leading a team as well. And just to probe a little bit more there, Tim, looking back at your leadership journey, what advice would you give to yourself on day one of becoming a CEO? That's a terrific question. And we do write ourselves, you know, first 100-day plans, last 100-day plans, et cetera. But we, we, we <laughs> that go out the door yeah. on day one of joining an organisation. <laughs> Pretty much, exactly. Um, so, look, I suppose the only advice you can give yourself is not to be too harsh on yourself, but make sure that what you're doing stands up to your own professional integrity and professional standards. So I would certainly say the thing that we probably learnt en route, which I'd like to have been able to send back to myself, you know, as – as we start to professionalize the organization is a simple one is to think like a system and act like an entrepreneur. So to be prepared to, as you problem solve, as you approach objectives and plans, et cetera, to really be prepared. Okay. What's, what do we need to do to operate as our best in terms of the system within which we're working? And then as you've got that sort of systematic piece agreed and set you almost then change gear and then say okay now we need to act like an entrepreneur we've agreed our systematic input what are the sort of behaviors we want to see in order to bring that plan and that systematic piece to life and that can be very different from being systematic it can be actually you know finding the right for example a balance between country autonomy and global consistency. Very difficult to do, but entrepreneurial behaviours can find a way through. I was reading a piece recently described that as local behaviours, which is what social entrepreneurs you know, need to do. Think globally, but be prepared to support the right kind of local behaviours. I think global was the term that they were using. I like that. Think like a system and act like an entrepreneur. And I think the culture piece is also really important here yeah. because as the leader, you are essentially cultivating a culture that is going to bring out those behaviours that we want to see in order to bring those plans to life. And I think actually to, to flip that glocal adage on its head, I think there's also a need to really think locally and then bring that up into a more global scope. And I think that is something that UWS does really well because all of our programmes and the entities in countries are essentially set up independently and there is decentralization of the programs and engagement with the communities at really at the grassroots and then bringing it up to look at okay globally how are we bringing all of that together and tying those threads together in order to have a bigger impact completely agree and, and that's i think has been how we've managed the last 18 plus months with some real success which is all about that local partnership and local leadership which has had to come to the absolute forefront of everyone's thinking. What we've managed to achieve with some fantastic local social entrepreneurs leading every step, you know, is significant. And there's no way that anybody, you know, sat in London or, or any other city around the world whilst the global pandemic is going on, there's no way that their direct action is going to make a blind bit of difference. But facilitating, supporting, enabling, encouraging others to act locally in the right way for their community is something we can do. And I think we've done that with a lot of success and we should be massively proud of our teams for doing so. Absolutely. So Tim, this feels like a good point in the conversation to ask you, what are you most proud to have accomplished at United World Schools? That's a very kind question. And the first thing I think I'm most proud of is the 
collective impact that a big group of people have made. And I'll be forever indebted to countless people who have supported the last 10 years. And I think every single person, you all know who you are, should be very, very proud, actually, of what has been collectively achieved. Because, you know, it is so true that that concept of being greater than the sum of your parts. We've brought together business people, we've brought together indigenous minority communities, we've brought together corporates, brought together schools, and we've brought people together which have achieved, actually, I think, which is something which is very special, which is, now, you know, we're now approaching 50,000 enrolments in around 270 schools over the last 10 or so years. These are impressive numbers. And so I think the team should be massively proud and, and everyone involved should be massively proud. At a very geeky level, now this is going to sound really quite sad. One of the things I'm most proud of about the organisation is we've maintained the focus on the child in school throughout and that has been the driver of the mission. So, you know, like anyone who's run an organisation, it's not all plain sailing. There are plenty of road bumps on route and we should all expect those. But to a person, we've all been passionate about that eight-year-old Indigenous minority girl whose mum and dad are illiterate and whose only life pathway as as an illiterate eight-year-old is to become a farmer or a mum. Well, actually, we're changing that. And I think we could be incredibly proud of being able to to transform lives through education and make sure that eight-year-old girl and, and hundreds and thousands of others have got a much different life pathway. So deeply proud of the collective impact and uh, in a funny way Divya look it means a lot to be transitioning the CEO role to you and you know oh, thank you recruited a, a fabulous CEO and I'm delighted to be taking it forward well thank you Tim thank you so much this has been such an enjoyable and really inspirational discussion and actually one other question that I did have for you which I've been curious about for a little while, is where does the name United World Schools come from? Who (laughs) came up with that name and why was it chosen? It's a reference to some of the founding trustees who were alumni of United World Colleges, Uh which is a fabulous organisation. There's some brilliant work, more at the sort of secondary and years 12 and 13, grade 13 level. But they do some fabulous work and very much globally minded in their approach. But it was alumni of that system who were many of the founding trustees. The partner school element of what we do, you know, twinning more affluent schools with community schools around the world, makes them united, recognising world, our global community, but uniting world schools. It's come together. And although it's a very grand title, you know, sometimes I think one needs to talk it up. And sometimes by talking it up, you can become much bigger than what you initially were, which is part of the fun. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad I asked you that question because now I know. May I sort of turn the table slightly? I know you're the expert interviewer here, but if I could just do a a little bit of poor man's impersonation. (laughs) Go for it. It would be great just to hear hear a little bit from you because I've heard you ask this question to many, many people over the last three series. So I'm very glad to be able to ask this now of Divya O'Connor. Divya O'Connor, as an experienced charity CEO, what's your superpower? (laughs) Well, I believe that I have many superpowers, but I think the one that is most current and most relevant to my professional life is that I translate ideas into action. Brilliant. So that's my answer, Tim. (laughs) Give me one little example. Put a tiny bit of colour on that. Reflect on that, what that superpower in action at some point recently. 
Well, just as an example off the top of my head is this podcast. It was something that as an idea and a concept that I started in lockdown um, last year whilst I was on maternity break. And at the time, I knew absolutely nothing about podcasting. In fact, I didn't even listen to podcasts that much. But I had this idea for the charity CEO podcast, and I thought it was a good idea. And I believe that it's my ability to take an idea and then to really think about the best way to bring that idea to life, for example, in terms of research or resources or engaging the best technical skills and expertise, that has really been critical in my ability to not just launch the podcast, but also ensure its ongoing success, because here we are in season three. And I've actually been absolutely blown away by how much of a following it has gained and how much value it has created within the wider sector. And I'm really pleased to be helping disseminate some of these great ideas and the conversations that I'm having with many leaders across the sector, across a much wider group of, of listeners and audience. So that's one example sort of on, on both personal and professional level in terms of translating ideas yeah. into action. Absolutely. So let's play that forward. I'm sure all of your listeners are also really, really interested to hear about your CEO journey and your, your plans for United World Schools moving forward. It'd be great to hear just a little bit more about your vision for the future for UWS, building on, on what we've achieved to date. Well, I think the future is really exciting. There are so many possibilities and opportunities to create change. And when I think about the future in the United World Schools context, one number that keeps coming up that we haven't really touched upon so far is 258 million. 258 million children who are currently out of school across the world. And that is a big number. It's a scary number. And one could look at it and think, oh my gosh, how do we make a dent in that? And so when I look to the future of UWS, I think about it in terms of what is our secret source? What is it that UWS does really well and that we do so well that it is difficult for others to replicate? Mm. Or in business terms, what is our competitive advantage? And Tim, you've alluded to this in, in some of what you've talked about already. But to take that metaphor further, if we are able to clearly identify all of the ingredients of our secret source and almost patent it and bottle it in order to then mass produce it, I believe that will give UWS the ability to really deliver impact at scale. And so that is my vision for the future of UWS. And as we are starting to develop our strategy and our business plan for the next few years, I would really like to keep the idea of leveraging our secret source, as I call it, at the heart of our thinking. And I think it's really important to have that clarity of vision and purpose because that enables us also to make key strategic decisions, for example, you know, when we are considering delivery mechanisms or expansion, as we are looking to scale and really move the organization into its next stage of development and growth, where do we focus our finite resources is going to be an important question. And if listeners want to hear more about models that support delivering impact and scale, I would really encourage you to listen to episode 26, which is my conversation with Alistair Harris, Executive Director of Blue Ventures, because we do explore this concept in a lot more detail. And so, Tim, to come back to you now and in closing... Do you have any final thoughts or reflections that you would like to share? I mean, what is one thing that you would like listeners to take away from this conversation? 
I think just listening to you there, Divya, was absolutely inspiring. And we've got a very scary big number out there, which is 250 plus million out of school children of different ages around the world. And that is exactly as you say, it's a big and scary number. On the other hand, we know that by moving to action, and it takes courage, it takes confidence to move to action, but actually you can achieve an awful lot. And it's amazing what a what a group of absolutely committed people can do if they if they get out there and get busy and start to tackle this. And, and if United World Schools can bottle some of what we've learned over the last 10 years and really leverage it, that's an incredibly exciting proposition. Hopefully that means we're doing what the best organisations should be doing, which is with each appointment of a senior leader, you build the talent and capability and you complement each other as you move forward. And so it's um, incredibly exciting to hear here, that's part of the plan, and I can't wait to be cheering on from the sidelines. Absolutely. Thank you. And actually, if I could just add to that, I think particularly in the post-COVID context, a collaborative approach to solving some of the big world problems is really, really important. And I know, Tim, that this is something that you actually started at UWS in terms of a partnership approach. And so going into Madagascar recently in terms of the pilot was very much done in partnership with Blue Ventures, who are already established in that jurisdiction as a partner on the ground. And I think that sort of partnership model is going to be really, really valuable as we are looking to scale. So how do you bring together different organizations who can each deliver a specific part of the value chain in order to provide holistic support to a community that you're looking to serve. And I think there's something really key in how we look to leverage that as well. Super exciting. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much, Tim. That was so much fun. Thank you for being a guest on the show. My pleasure and can't wait to listen to future episodes as well. Really, really enjoying them. What a great conversation with Tim Howes, the founding CEO and my predecessor at United World Schools. This idea of an organization's unique secret source is one that I genuinely believe should be brought to the foreground when developing organizational strategy and growth plans. And I'm particularly interested in how different charities can combine their individual secret sources to provide a wholesome, nutritious and complete meal for the beneficiaries and communities that together we serve. I believe that the path to scale and delivering impact at scale lies in working together and leveraging the power of collaboration and partnership. And so, with respect to the future of United World Schools, watch this space. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the Charity CEO Podcast, a show that, thanks to you, our listeners, has repeatedly reached the number one spot in Apple's non-profit podcast category. If you found this conversation valuable, please help spread the word. Share or tag us on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram. And make sure you subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button on your podcast app. And if you're feeling inspired or uplifted by what you have just heard, please share the joy by leaving us a five-star review. Visit our website, thecharityceo.com, for full show details, information on past season guests, and to submit ideas for future guests. Thanks again to our Season 3 sponsor, Eden Tree. And thank you for continuing to listen. Mm-hmm.